Hello there, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Gladstones Land podcast. Something we are asked often in emails is for us to provide a little more background to place Edinburgh's story in the context of the rest of Scotland in the 17th century. So we thought it would be useful to do just that, to take a step back from the pattern of uh, episodes about specific themes and have a look at Scotland and Scottish society as a whole in the early 17th century. Uh, State of the Kingdom episode, if you will. This season, as you know, we have been focusing primarily on Gladstone's land and the people who have some connection either to the property itself or to Edinburgh in the period when Thomas Gladstone and his family lived in the building. But Edinburgh was just one city, and although it was by that stage just emerging as Scotland's principal city, it was far from being representative of the whole kingdom and was influenced a great deal by what took place elsewhere. So today we're going to fill in some of the background to the drama in which Edinburgh played a key role and paint a general picture of the Kingdom of Scotland in around 1600. We will take a canter around the country looking at the geography of the different regions and have a discussion about the state of the economy, royal government and culture. This is not going to be a narrative chronology of the events of the period. We, uh, we've, we've done quite a bit of that, actually, I think, in the rest of the podcast. Um, so I don't want to be repeating myself or ourselves. Instead, we're going to talk about where people lived, how they lived and how they interacted with each other in the rest of the country. Now, I am not a social historian. Uh, and so some of this may not be as thorough as some listeners would like, but I hope it will be interesting and should fill in some details in the story of Scotland that we have discussed over the past episodes. And as our intention for the new series of the podcast is to go beyond Gladstone's land and look at some other National Trust properties, this should hopefully be useful preparation for that. Does all of that sound good to you? I hope so. Well, let's get started. I'm, I'm going to begin with a quotation from Rosalind Mitchison's book Lordship to Patronage, Scotland 1603 to 1745, a volume in the New Edinburgh History of Scotland which gives us a good mental image of Scotland in our period while providing at the outset a helpful point about comparisons. She says this. The obvious development of the bonds between Scotland and England has had a misleading effect on the study of Scottish history, forcing constantly comparison of the institutions, economies and achievements of the two countries. England in 1603 was not yet the richest part of Europe, but was certainly one of the richer and more powerful individual states. By contrast, Scotland was poor, only loosely held together in terms of government and, though responding to the main movements of the day in terms of law, institutions and religion, still peripheral to the life of Europe. It is more fruitful to look at her in the company of the less developed parts of northern and western Europe, Scandinavia, Ireland, Poland, Portugal or Castile, than to draw comparisons between her and England. End quote. Scotland was, in other words, a very different country from England when its king, James VI, became the King of England. It is important to remember this, particularly as much of the historical mainstream in the UK is dominated by pictures of English history. So let us look first at Scotland's geography. The landscape is always an important influence over the development of a country and its people, and Scotland is no exception. Scotland in 1600 had broadly the borders that it has today. For the most part, the border with England, Scotland's only land border, was fixed at the line from the River Tweed in the east to the Solway in the west, which had been set by the Treaty of York in 1237. The main divergence from this was the town of Berwick, 
on the northern bank of the River Tweed, which had been the richest Scottish borough in the Middle Ages and had been held by England since it was captured by Richard III in 1482. Orkney and Shetland were the most recent acquisitions. During the medieval period, the Scottish islands, both the Western Isles and those Northern Isles, were not governed by the Scottish kings but were independent lordships. The Western Isles formed a, a state called the Lordship of the Isles, which had originally been a Viking kingdom and had come under the control of a native Gallic ruling house, which was a vassal of, but in practical terms, independent of the Scottish crown. The Northern Isles, that's Orkney and Shetland, formed the Earldom of Orkney, an ancient territory originally founded in the 10th century and theoretically subject to the King of Norway. Both of these had come under nominal Scottish control in the 1400s, but royal authority was still thin on the ground in these two fringe regions. Scotland was divided, as it is today, into two broad spheres, the Lowlands and the Highlands, and to that list of broad cultural zones we might add two more. The islands, which we discussed a moment ago and were much like the highlands except that they were um, surrounded by water. Uh, and the fourth is the border. The dividing line between the highlands and the lowlands was not, as is often thought today, a straight line somewhere above Edinburgh and Glasgow. If you google highland line you should be able to find a map showing a dividing line starting somewhere around Dumbarton, just north of Glasgow, going across to the east coast and then snaking along the coastline right up round the North Sea coast and all the way to Caithness at the very top of Scotland. This puts Aberdeen and Inverness in the lowlands, at least for cultural purposes, although this might seem a little strange to people today. The lowland zone included almost all of Scotland's towns, generally called burrs, which were the major trading centres. It also included most of the farming and the beginnings of industry. The lowlands spoke Scots, a Germanic language closely related to English. By 1600, the lowland zone had become mostly Protestant, as Protestants tended to be focused in towns. The main exception to this is in the northeast around Aberdeen, which remained strongly Catholic and later Episcopalian. In the lowland zone by 1600, the road network was pretty good and royal government was relatively strong. The highland zone, by contrast, was more sparsely populated and primarily still Gallic speaking. The soil in the highlands is extremely thin even today, so it was hard to grow crops and folks overwhelmingly kept livestock, mostly sheep and cows. The 16th century had seen a little ice age during which lochs froze over and made the highlands even less productive. In the highlands, royal government and the Protestant church had less of an impact and local magnates, or otherwise known as the great landlords, were very powerful. The Western Isles, fall broadly into the highlands in this classification. The other zone was the border. Historically, Scotland proper only included everything north of the rivers Forth and Clyde, and everything south of that, including Edinburgh and Glasgow, was territory controlled most of the time by the King of Scots, but contested by England. By 1600, as noted earlier, the border had been firmly established for some time, but Edinburgh was still considered a frontier town, and everything south of there was quite chaotic. On both sides of the border, the area was known as the Scottish Marches, a largely lawless areas of small lordships, bands of raiders, and mixed alliances with powerful families swapping allegiance from England to Scotland and back as it suited them. Neither King's Writ, that's neither the writ of the King of England or of the King of Scots, ran very far in the border zone. This situation ended in theory when James VI became King of England, although in practice that probably took some time to enforce. 
So those are the broad cultural zones. Lowlands, highlands, islands, border. Okay, so far so good. Below the various cultural zones, the kingdom was divided into a number of administrative units called shires. There were 33 in all, and they were a bit like English counties. In essence, a shire was an area of administration of justice and the responsibility of a sheriff. Sheriff means shire reeve. In the lowlands, the shires were centred around a county town and clearly influenced by English government. Think Berwickshire, Lanarkshire, Wigtownshire, and so on. In the highlands, they were larger areas named for regions rather than towns, which suggests perhaps that they were based on existing lordships and that the local magnate was also the sheriff. Think Argyle, Ross, Sutherland. If you Google Shires of Scotland, you'll find some pretty decent maps of the Scottish shires, which should give you a good idea of the layout of early modern Scotland. Starting in the southeast with a traditional border zone, we have Berwickshire, Roxburghshire, Selkirkshire, and Peeblesshire, which was sometimes called Tweeddale. Moving westwards, you have Dumfriesshire, Kirkcubrieshire, Wigtownshire, and Ayrshire, an area thoughtfully known as the Southwest, which was a stronghold for radical Presbyterianism and later the Covenanters. Then we move into the traditional Central Belt of Scotland, although I don't think anyone called it the Central Belt at the time, which constituted the main body of the lowlands and was the economic and social centre of Scotland at this time. From east to west then we have East Lothian, Haddingtonshire. Uh, From east to west then we have East Lothian, otherwise known as Haddingtonshire, Mid Lothian, otherwise known as Edinburghshire, West Lothian, otherwise known as Linlithgowshire, Lanarkshire, Renfrewshire, and then we cross the River Clyde and swing back the other way with Dumbartonshire, Stirling, Clackmannanshire, Kinrossshire, and Fife. Fife was a rich and populous area, primarily because of St Andrews as a centre of university and church life, and for the East Coast fishing towns, and was also another Protestant centre, as well as being a popular landing spot for French and Jacobite invasions. Moving north and east from this strip, but still in the cultural lowlands, we find Perthshire, which of course contained the important town of Perth and also Schoon, where Scottish kings were crowned, Angus, also known as Forfarshire, King Cardenshire, Aberdeenshire, Banffshire, Elgin, and Nairnshire. The northeast was traditionally a conservative area, the domain of the powerful Gordon family. Remember the Marquis of Gordon, who we talked about in the story of Sir James Crichton of Fentdraft. He was from Aberdeenshire. Uh, the, uh, the Gordon family were prominent Catholics, and uh, the northeast remained firstly Catholic and then widely Episcopalian well into the 18th century. So that's the lowlands. To cover the highlands, we can start in the very northeastern tip of the kingdom in Caithness, then sweep down through Sutherland, Cromartyshire, Rossshire, Invernessshire, Argyllshire, and finally Bute, which included the Isle of Arran. An example of how these highland shires were formed out of old lordships can be seen in the bizarre reality that the Western Isles were divided between the shires of Ross and Inverness. If you look on your handy map, you will see that Lewis belongs to Ross, but Harris, Eust, Barra and Skye belong to the Shire of Inverness. You don't, by any means, need to remember all these counties, but I find them quite useful to give you at least an idea of which part of the country something took place. Like I keep saying, if you're not sure, just consult your handy map. Okay, that's geographical regions. What about the settlements? There were a number of towns in Scotland, and these were generally called boroughs. 
These were urban settlements, usually with walls, which had in the past been given a royal charter, which allowed them to elect their own town council and have some independent control over trading. The purpose was to simulate trade. The town councillors were called burgesses. We've already met a few of those on the Gladstone's Land podcast. You will remember that Thomas Gladstone himself married Bessie Cunningham, the daughter of a burgess of Edinburgh, and he later became an Edinburgh burgess himself. The burrs were represented in Parliament. More on that in a bit. The word burr comes from the same root as the English word borough and can be found in a few Scottish town names today like Musselburgh, Jedburgh, Fraserburgh, and of course, Edinburgh. The boroughs range from big centres like Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Dunfermline and Perth, all the way through smaller places like St Andrews, Anstruther and Dunbar. There is a good list on Wikipedia of the Scottish boroughs. Boroughs? I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Royal Burr. Royal Borough? Anyway. So, that's the geography out of the way. What about the local economy? We've spoken quite a bit on this podcast about trade and commerce, which was central to Edinburgh's life and the lives of several of the characters in our story, like Thomas Gladstone, who was himself a merchant, and also John Riddock, who kept the shops on the ground floor of Gladstone's land. What about the rest of the country? The daily grind earning a living or growing food to eat was central to everyone's lives, so it bears thinking about. And also, as I often get asked on the tours, what were the merchants trading? Well, the vast majority of the Scottish population in our period were subsistence farmers and depended for their existence on what they could produce themselves or what was grown locally. More than 80% of the population were farmers. Their lives were governed by the pattern and demands of the seasons and the harvests. Harvest failure was common and famines were therefore frequent, as there was very little anyone could do about them. As we have noted already, there was some difference between farming in the lowland and highland zones. The lowlands had slightly better soil and so some arable farming took place there, but in the highlands the soil was too thin and people would have to keep cows or sheep for their wool and hides as well as for meat. In around 1600, most people farmed an area collectively with a group of families, and this system gradually gave way to individual family landholdings as the century progressed. The population of Scotland in 1600 was about one million, similar to Denmark. By contrast, England had five million, France and Poland about 20 million, and Spain 30 million. What sort of things was Scotland producing, other than food to feed its people? Well, mostly a range of raw materials is the answer. Most of Scotland's exports at the time were things like wool and cloth, salt, herrings and other fish, animal hides and coal. I can give you an example from my own master's thesis about a 16th century landowner, the Knights of St John. The Knights held lands across Scotland from which they collected rents, and they also exported salmon from their estates in Kincardenshire. Have a look on that map if you're not sure. And ran a coal mine near Linlithgow. Our friend Sir James Crichton, Gladstone's land resident in 1635, had his castle burnt down in a dispute over fishing rights in Aberdeenshire, which gives you an idea of how lucrative the export of fish must have been. Another interesting commodity that Scotland exported in the early modern period was soldiers. Scotsmen were famed across Europe as warriors, and many served in the armies of European leaders as mercenaries. Many Scots were involved, for instance, on the Protestant side in the Thirty Years' War, fighting in the armies of France and the Dutch Republic. In addition to these exports of raw materials, Scotland was starting to develop the beginnings of industry. We've already mentioned coal mining. 
Various attempts were made in the early modern period to bring manufacturers from abroad, such as Flemish cloth makers and Venetian glass blowers, and to develop these industries in Scotland with varying degrees of success. It was in the 16th century, with the decline of the monasteries, that commercial breweries began to emerge, and the brewing of beer has remained an important industry in Scotland to this day, especially in Edinburgh. Attempts such as these to encourage the development of industry leads us on nicely to talk a little about Scotland's government. This is interesting in and of itself perhaps, and also because it is relevant to a lot of the people and events who we have discussed on the Gladstone's Land podcast. Although we do talk about merchants and servants, we have also been discussing kings, queens, burgesses, nobles and churchmen who made the decisions in Scotland. We have also made reference to law courts, parliaments and general assemblies, and I think it would be useful to put these into place. So, at the centre of Scottish government, of course, was the Crown. For most of this period, the Crown sat on the heads of men and women of the House of Stuart, which was in fact one of the most long-lasting and successful dynasties in European history, even if it fell apart uh, rather spectacularly, as we have discussed. The House of Stuart takes its name from the word steward. They were descended from a knight called Walter Fitzalan, descended from a family originally from Brittany, who came to Scotland during the reign of David I in the 12th century and was appointed as the first hereditary steward of the kingdom, an official who managed the king's household. Think Denethor of Gondor in Lord of the Rings. The family came to adopt Stuart as their surname, and a couple of centuries later the sixth steward, Walter Stuart, was married to Marjorie Bruce, the daughter of King Robert the Bruce. Walter Stuart and Marjorie had a son, who they tactfully named Robert, and when Robert the Bruce's son, David II, died childless in 1371, this Robert Stuart became King of Scots. From then until 1714, that's over 300 years, the Stuarts ruled Scotland in an almost unbroken line of parent to child. Robert III, his son James I, his son James II, his son James III, his son James IV, his son James V, his daughter Mary, friend of the podcast, her son James VI, who became King of England, his son Charles I, unfortunately beheaded, his son Charles II, his brother James VII, who was deposed in the Glorious Revolution, his daughter Mary II, and her sister Anne. This is a remarkable run of staying power. Consider that in the same period, England changed its ruling house six times, five by a violent coup, and once by running out of heirs and handing the throne to the Stuarts. It is sometimes observed, usually, no doubt, by slightly sneering English historians, that the Scottish crown was weak, constantly under the sway of noble families more powerful than the ruling house, and exercised little central authority over the rest of the kingdom, in comparison to the English crown, which by the 16th century had a large and efficient burgeoning bureaucracy. And this may be partly true. There is no doubt that large parts of Scotland were controlled by noble families who were almost like kings in their own regions, and that the Scottish government was smaller and poorer than its English counterpart. But, as historians such as Jenny Wormold and Michael Brown have observed, there may have been more to this than meets the eye. The Scottish crown was weaker and poorer because it didn't need to be as controlling. Society was less stratified, that is, there were not as many different ranks. The kingdom was smaller, so a complicated machinery administration was not so important. And crucially, the relationship between the crown and the magnates was probably more nuanced than a simple story of overpowerful nobles walking all over weak kings. Royal government was mostly concerned with keeping powerful nobles within the framework 
of the kingdom. Yes, many of them could rival the king in their area, but few of the great families were ancient in any real sense that implied an independent power base. Most had been elevated relatively recently with the aid of the crown, or were in fact junior branches of the House of Stuart, like the Albany Stuarts or the Darnley Stuarts. So the magnates owed the crown for their positions. The likely outcome of all this is that although various magnate families tried to control the king, there was widespread general agreement over who the king was. The Gordons, the Macdonalds and the Douglases did not try to seize the crown for themselves in the way that the Lancastrians, the Yorkists and the Tudors did in England, or for that matter the de Guise or Navarre did in France. This picture belies a greater degree of political sophistication than the picture of a weak king being pushed about by his noble supposes. Honours, status, land and power all ultimately flowed from the crown, and both king and nobles remembered this and had a reasonably easy peace governing in partnership. One key feature of royal government in Scotland in the 16th centuries is minorities, i.e. kings or queens coming to the throne as children. All four of Scotland's 16th century monarchs were crowned as children and had long minorities. We started the first episode of this podcast talking about the Battle of Flodden when James IV was killed. This left his son James V to ascend to the throne aged one. James V himself died just six days after the birth of his daughter, who was Mary, Queen of Scots. You may remember from our episode on MQS that she spent much of her minority physically out of the country in France. And of course, Mary was deposed by the lords of the congregation during the Reformation, and they installed her 13-month-old son as King James VI. During a minority, the kingdom would be ruled by a regent, operating with some kind of council that was meant to represent the community of the realm, i.e. all the important interests in the country. And this is the principal means by which noble families sought to control royal government. They did not need to depose the king or queen, generally speaking. They just needed to control the regency administration and have custody of the child, king or queen himself, what was referred to as controlling the king's person. The only times that opposition factions sought to overthrow an adult king or queen, they did so by capturing the heir to the throne, declaring them the new king, and fighting the old monarch in the name of the new puppet one. Something like this happened in 1488, when opponents of James III rallied around his teenage son, who was to become James IV. And it happened again in the Reformation, when the Protestant lords of the congregation fought in the name of the baby James VI against the supporters of his mother, Mary Queen of Scots. Okay, I think that's just enough about technical detail of the Renaissance Scottish crown. Let's move on before we go down too many rabbit holes. Around the king, there was a council of advisers. There were a few great offices of state which were royal appointees. Chancellor, the head of the king's administration who controlled the king's seal. Treasurer, in charge of the king's treasury. And secretary, who controlled access to the king and a number of other offices with various duties. These officers and others formed the Lords of Council, who we presume met often to advise the king and carry out his decisions. The main function of this council, which we have records for today, is judicial. We have very accurate and complete records for much of the 15th and 16th century, which show the council meeting most days throughout the year and hearing legal cases. Not all members of the council attended each meeting, or sederunt, from the Latin word to sit. It looks as if the Chancellor and a few others, perhaps councillors who had a particular legal reputation, formed a more or less permanent bench of judges, and were joined in the council by whichever nobles happened to be in Edinburgh at the time. 
Talking about the law courts brings us nicely round the subject of justice. Unlike today, when we have all sorts of different interactions with the state, like paying income tax and VAT, applying for driver's license and passports, voting, drawing pensions and so on, in 16th century Scotland there were relatively few ways that you interacted with the government. In fact, the main area in which an ordinary woman or man would have course to interact with the state was in the area of justice, being tried for a crime they might have committed, suing others or being sued. Renaissance Scotland was quite a litigious society in which people seemed to be suing each other all the time over questions of inheritance, land holding and so on. One of the most common terms to appear in the records of the Lords of Council which I mentioned earlier is rangis occupation, i.e. false possession of some land or property. And although magnates would have upheld justice in their own local courts, royal justice was one key way in which kings could stamp their authority on the provinces. So, as we mentioned in our discussion of geography, each shire had an appointed judge, the sheriff, who was responsible for administering the king's justice in that area. And more interestingly, perhaps, the king and his councillor would often travel about the country on what were known as justice heirs, hearing cases in different boroughs up and down the kingdom. So that's the council. Alongside the council, the other important instrument in Scottish government was Parliament. This was a body which met regularly, often more than once a year, to approve taxation and pass various other laws. It had grown out of the Scottish Wars of Independence when it was necessary to govern by consensus of what was called the community of the realm, that is, all the various powerful parties. By 16th century, Parliament was drawn from representatives of the three estates, that is, the clergy, the nobility, and the boroughs. Although they represented different groups, the Parliament was unicameral, so all members sat and voted together. If you are familiar with the English, or now British Parliament, with two separate houses, this might seem a little odd, but bear with me. The representatives of the clergy were the 13 bishops plus the mitred abbots, the abbots who got to wear a mitre, the leaders of the various abbeys who were important enough to be entitled to wear a mitre. These were, if you really want to know, Arbroath, Cambus Kenneth, Cooper Angus, Dunfermline, Holyrood, Iona, Kelso, Kilwinning, Kinloss, Lindors, Paisley, Melrose, Schoon, St Andrew's Priory, and the evocatively named Sweetheart Abbey near Dumfries. The nobles included a small smattering of dukes and earls, the traditional old nobility, and a new class of peer, the Lords of Parliament, people given a peerage by the king to allow them to sit in Parliament, and the shire commissioners, who were effectively like English MPs elected by the county constituencies. More on those new peers in a little bit. The third estate included elected representatives of several of the boroughs. It seems that only the most important boroughs were allowed to send a deputy, and the right to do so was highly sought after. That's the picture of who made up the parliaments at the beginning of the 16th century. It sounds like quite a lot of people, but in practice there may have been fewer than a hundred members at each parliament. The Reformation complicated things a little, because although several bishops continued to attend parliament, the abbots were increasingly replaced by commendators, who were laymen given control of the revenues of the abbeys. As I said, this is all actually not as different from the English Parliament as it might seem. Although they all sat and voted together, rather than as separate blocks, the three estates of the Scots Parliament all have their equivalents in the English one. Bishops and mitred abbots sat in the House of Lords, so the first estate are there. The rest of the House of Lords was made up of the aristocracy, the second estate, and the House of Commons comprised two representatives each from every shire and borough in England, 
which are roughly equivalent to the shire commissioners and the borough commissioners in the Scottish Parliament. The differences are minor. The point is that although the system was not democratic, it did mean that the whole community of the realm, or at least the groups who had money and influence, were involved in some way in the government of the kingdom. There's a really good website about the Scottish Parliament, if you are keen, as I'm sure you are, called the Records of the Parliaments of Scotland, run by the University of St Andrews, which provides transcripts of all the acts and proceedings of all the parliaments from Alexander II all the way through to Queen Anne. One of the most interesting points to look at is the list of attendees. For instance, in the parliament held in October 1579, we can see that the sederunt, the list of attendees, is divided into six bishops, 15 commendators, 10 earls, seven lords of parliament, and 28 burgesses, 66 men in all. The Managing Committee of Parliament was a group called the Lords of the Articles, which seems to have been not entirely different from the Lords of Council which advised the King, and in fact many powerful figures served on both bodies, suggesting that they were there trying to direct Parliament to do the King's bidding. I fear I have banged on about the apparatus of government a bit too long now, so I'll leave it at that, but just make this final point. The period we cover in the podcast, the 16th and 17th centuries, saw an explosion in the size and reach of government. Royal government became increasingly rich and more sophisticated and developed a larger and more complicated bureaucracy to manage all this. We talked about this a bit with Nicole in the episode on Mary Queen of Scots when she talked about the rise of the secretary, what we might think of as the monarch's chief minister, running the executive branch of government. Partly the Reformation was responsible for this. The decline of the monasteries and removal of bishops as senior councillors meant that there was room for new men and lots of new land able to endow them and allowed for the rise of a new class of professional lay bureaucrats. But also there was just many more opportunities as government grew. Things like foreign embassies, the distribution of church lands, local enforcement of royal justice, the new shire commissioners and the burgeoning civil service allowed the promotion of the king's favourites. This led, in the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, to the creation of a new aristocracy, largely drawn from local small landowners and city burgesses. James VI doubled the number of Scottish peers, and his new nobility looked to the crown rather than a local power base for favour and advancement. It's a bit, for those who are familiar with French history, it's a bit like the old nobles of the sword versus the new nobles of the robe who were created by, uh, by the crown. Government was increasingly bureaucratic by pen rather than by sword. Scotland was still a more violent society than most in Europe. Throughout Europe, the nobility were shedding its traditional military function and, and it was no longer taken for granted that a nobleman could command an army. But in the Scottish provinces, local feuding was severe. Local magnates still commanded private armies and landowners built heavily defended tower houses, like Fentdraft Castle, for instance. Men still travelled with a sizeable armed retinue, so much so that in 1591 James VI had to limit an earl to 24 men, a lord to 12 men and a baron to 10 men. But things were changing. The rise of this new nobility of service, dependent on the crown, began to act as a counterweight to the old magnates. The idea that Scotland was governed by pen, by settled bureaucratic government, that was increasingly controlled by the king was important, as in 1603 the king was to leave Scotland and the kingdom would never again have a full-time executive monarch running the government directly. Scotland was well practiced for this thanks to all those minorities. James VI would boast that he could govern Scotland from London with his pen and while many Scots would probably have been slightly annoyed by that assertion, he was probably right. Right. That's quite enough about government. Sorry about that. 
In the last few minutes, I'll talk briefly about church structures and universities, and then we'll have a quick look at Scottish society in general before calling it a day. Deal? Okay. The church. I'm not going to talk extensively about the church, as we have covered ecclesiastical politics reasonably well throughout uh, in our episodes on the Reformation, William Struthers, and the Jacobites. But I'll paint a picture of the Scottish Church as it stood on the eve of the Reformation, and then look very briefly at some of the practical changes of Protestantism. Scotland, in 1560, had 13 bishops, each of whom managed a district called a diocese. These were the Archbishops of St Andrews and Glasgow, the Bishops of Galloway, Argyle, Dunkeld, Dunblane, Brekin, basically Angus, Aberdeen, Murray, Ross, Caithness, Orkney, and the Diocese of the Isles. The Scottish Church had been known as Rome's special daughter, which meant originally that the Scottish bishops answered to Rome directly and not to an archbishop, although by the 1500s that was no longer true, as the Archbishop of St Andrews was considered the primate of Scotland. As well as the bishops and their cathedrals, there were a number of abbeys scattered across the country, which ranged from great houses like Melrose and Arbroath, which were huge landowners and whose abbots acted, as we have seen, as magnates, all the way down to small friaries in the cities who engaged in a ministry of caring for the poor. Some of these can still be detected in the urban fabric of Scotland's towns in street names like Blackfriars Wind in Edinburgh, where the Dominicans would have lived. We've mentioned the Edinburgh Franciscans, or Greyfriars, in this podcast as they fought a pitched battle with a Protestant rabble on St Giles' Day in 1559. And, as well as cathedrals and monasteries, Scotland was divided into over a thousand parishes, each of which had a parish church and was the responsibility, in theory, of a parish priest. Church and royal government clashed over the amount of control each should have over the other. Protestantism took hold more in the lowlands, and this served to accentuate the country's divides. The lowlands became increasingly Protestant and therefore in the hands of Kirk Sessions and ministers in terms of justice at the expense of the old nobility, while the north remained more Catholic under control of Catholic earls, so kinship continued to matter more. Reformation made increased demands on individual personal lives. Both Protestants and post-Reformation Catholics had more rules than the medieval church. Marriage did become freer in the sense that individuals had more choice and freedom to marry without their king's consent, while the, but the Kirk became strict on sex outside marriage, which may not have been such an issue before. The state of the Reformed Kirk on the ground throughout Scotland is slightly unclear. In theory, the Reformed Kirk was meant to have an educated minister in every parish and some sort of school for children. In practice, there were not enough Protestant clergymen to go around. A large number of the old priests presumably came over and became Protestant ministers, but many parishes may have remained Catholic for some years been the responsibility of a minister covering a very large area, or simply gone without. One thing we do know is that certain areas were stronger for the Reformed Kirk, and others remain in various stages of partial reformation. Places like Galloway and Fife, as we have already discussed, and much of the area around Edinburgh were strongly Protestant areas, while the North East and Argyleshire became Episcopalian strongholds, and the Northern Highlands remained largely Catholic. Connected to the church were the universities. In the early modern period, Scotland had four, St Andrews, Aberdeen, Glasgow, and Edinburgh. The first three were medieval foundations, all founded in the 15th century. These were attached to senior bishoprics and were established to train clergy and canon lawyers, that is, interpreters of church law. At home, 
rather than forcing men to travel to England or France for university, as they had previously had to do. Edinburgh University was founded by the city in the 1580s to train more Protestant clergy. It is often noted that for such a small country to have four universities was quite a big achievement, suggesting a significant degree of intellectual and cultural sophistication. While it should be said that the number of different universities was not necessarily a mark of academic output, granted England only had two, but each one of those was much larger than any of the Scottish institutions, but nevertheless it was definitely a good thing, and Scottish writers and theologians do seem to have punched above their weight in medieval, renaissance and reformation writings. These universities would really become a great national asset in the 18th century as the driving force of the Scottish Enlightenment. We haven't spoken much about universities at all, but it is useful to know that they were there and training many of the clergy, lawyers and surgeons who were becoming prominent in Scotland at this time, and also living in places like Gladstone's land. So we've covered geography, economy, government and church and that pretty much exhausts everything I have to say in this gallop around the Kingdom of Scotland. Is there anything general and useful we could say about Scottish society at large? Scotland in this period was undergoing fairly major social change. We've talked a lot about things like the Reformation, the Civil Wars, the Jacobite Uprising, development of trade, emigration to the New World, commerce and the union with England. These things caused huge dislocation in Scotland and the rest of the British Isles in the 17th century. There are some things we can generalise about. Scotland was still very sparsely populated, with small towns dominated by large rural estates, and so localism was important. People were loyal primarily to their local area, their kin and their local lord. This made possible things like private armies and pockets of religious difference which wouldn't happen so much in a country that was more integrated and connected. The bonds of kin were important, but rapidly declining. Farmers in a local area would be tenants of a laird who was normally related to them in some way, and they would owe him personal loyalty as well as rent. There was an institution called the Name, whereby many people lived in an, living in an area would have the same surname, and a local landlord was the head of the name and would provide political leadership, local justice, and protection for his tenants and kinfolk. In the northeast, for example, the Marquises of Huntley were the head of the name of Gordon. You may remember that George Gordon, the first Marquis of Huntley, mediated between Sir James Crichton and the Gordons of Rothiemay in their famous dispute. There are significant vestiges of the old feudal lordship here, where men would give their oath and labour to a lord in exchange for his protection and some land. But this system was weakening. Among the lower orders, it remained strong in rural areas, but as society became increasingly fluid, urban and industrial in areas with a more sophisticated economy, the bonds of kinship weakened rapidly. It didn't matter that you were a kinsman of the Earl of Argyll once you moved to Edinburgh to become a cloth merchant. This means that a lot of the social structures we've talked about in this and previous episodes, and many of the other formal and informal social institutions which held the fabric of society together, were weakening throughout this period as people became freer and society increasingly in a state of flux. Large communal estates, where kin was important, were being broken up into individual landholdings, and community was increasingly provided by the parish, that is the parish church, in place of the kinship unit. There are a few other interesting things to note. Apparently, during the 17th century, Scots married relatively late compared to earlier and later periods. The average in 1650 was 28 for men and 26 for women, with very which very possibly accounts for the declining birth rate. Marriages were important and contracted primarily for economic considerations, 
particularly as the family rather than the kinship unit or clan was becoming the basic social and economic unit. We'll end this, this episode. We'll end this episode with a brief remark about probably the most important development in our period, which was the accession of the Scots King James VI to the throne of England. This inevitably meant social and political change. Other than a few key moments in the following two centuries, the king and court were entirely absent from Scotland. In fact, Scotland only saw three royal visits before the accession of Queen Victoria in 1832. James VI famously remarked that he governed Scotland with his pen. This is often taken as a derogatory statement about Scotland's relative importance, but it could also be taken to mean that Scotland's administration had to be quite sophisticated in order to survive without the king's presence. Scotland has always had a very strong sense of the community of the realm. The kingdom's leaders, be they nobles, churchmen or burgesses, had a strong sense of what the country was. After the king moved to England, there was no longer a permanent royal court in Scotland, so cultural patronage dried up. The move also meant a gradual Anglicisation of some elements of Scottish society, the king, his councillors, and elements of the Scottish nobility. Scots was still very much spoken as a distinct dialect in 1603. By the end of our period, in the mid-1700s, many Scottish leaders were deliberately starting to ape English manners and speak English, albeit with the distinctive accent for which they have remained famous. If there's one thing we've learned in this series, it is that early modern Scotland was anything but dull and unimportant. We've seen events in Scotland drive the narrative in wider British and European history, and we've seen Scotland and its famous capital enjoying an experience which was both distinctive and fully integrated into the society and culture of Britain and the rest of Europe. There's not much more to say here in this canter round Scotland, and I'm not going to make wide sweeping observations about the Scottish nation in this turbulent century, so I'm just going to leave it there. Thanks again for listening, and well done for getting to the end of this marathon episode. Do tune in when the podcast returns in the autumn to listen to Kate and Holly as they discuss more of the excellent history of Scotland and the work of the National Trust. Thanks for listening, and see you then.